Good morning. Everyone doing okay? You guys good out there? Good. Okay, so I was told um, if you can possibly move in a little bit, if there's people that still need seats in the back. Seriously. Um, man, we get pretty territorial about our seats, don't we? Like, move? How dare you, all right? Uh, if you see someone, if you're maybe towards the back or something, if there's some empty seats around you, you can shuffle over a little bit. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ, so it's cool to sit by people. It's, it's fun, even if you don't know them. You're gonna have to spend eternity with them, so. Uh... <laughs> Glad you guys are here this morning. So we're starting a new book of the Bible. We just got done with 1 Peter, and it makes sense for us to move into 2 Peter, which are letters. If you've never been here before, what we do is we go through whole books of the Bible, and the majority of the New Testament of the Bible were, were letters. And First and Second Peter uh, were, were written by, wait for it, a guy named Peter, to a group of churches in what the Bible calls Asia Minor, Minor we would call modern-day Turkey. And the reason why Peter wrote these letters is during this time, there was, there was heavy persecution from the Roman Empire on Christians. And so Christians were quite literally being dispersed around the world to, to flee from Rome, and they were being persecuted. And that's kind of what the nature of First Peter is all about, is Peter wrote this letter to these different churches saying, okay, we, we, I know you're being persecuted. I know times are hard. I know that it's tough to be a Christian right now, but he's basically saying, stand firm, right? Hold on to your faith. And last week when we finished First Peter, that was kind of how he rounded out that first letter. Stand strong, stand firm, resist evil. It's gonna be all right. We're gonna make it, right? And so that's how he ended that. Second Peter that we're gonna get into today, and I'll give you a little brief um, kind of overview uh, when, I, when I start getting into the PowerPoint. But what essentially Peter is going to focus on in the second letter is still persecution, right? Because that's still going on. This was written a couple of years after the first letter. But, but he, kinda, he kind of laser focuses in on one particular kind of, not persecution, but, but another problem that the church would face, and that is false teachers. That there are many false teachers in the world that will come in and try to detract you from what you should know to be correct. So that's what we're gonna talk about today. We're gonna talk about something um, very pragmatic, very straightforward, very nuts and bolts, um, simple stuff today. We're gonna to talk about the validity of the Holy Bible. And that it is only the truth that is contained in the Holy Bible that can set us free, that can save us, that can change us. So we're gonna talk about how important it is that Christians actually read and obey the scripture. And so there won't be any pyrotechnics at the end, no lasers, you know, people aren't gonna like, you know, just weep and moan on the floor at the end of this. It's gonna be very, very practical. And hopefully today, you will leave this place with, with maybe a little bit more sense of urgency to, to dive into the word of God, right? And to, to obey the word of God. I think there's like a raccoon stuck in one of our air conditioners over here that keeps squeaking, so I don't know what that is. So anyways, that's how you know you're in a fancy church, right? There's no seats, there's raccoons in the AC units. It's good. So. <laughs> anyways, you should have got a notes handout when you came into the building. I thought that was quite funny, so. I've been striking out big time on jokes this whole weekend. I've tried different ones at all three services and I got one more to go. None of them have flown over very well. It's cool, it's good. It's not why you're here, you're here for the Bible, that's, that's good. So you should have got a notes handout when you came in. 
Everything I'm gonna say will be in there. Uh, everything will be on the screens around the room if you didn't get one of those notes handouts. And if you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app, everything is on there. If you have a physical copy of the scripture, which is awesome, or if it's on your phone, whatever, that's fine, as long as you have the word. Right after the book of James, you have First and Second Peter. We're in Second Peter, we'll get through it relatively quick today, and um, then we'll take communion and you'll have an opportunity to respond. So, all right, let me pray for you then we'll dive into 2 Peter chapter one, okay? Father, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for everyone who's here this morning. I thank you, God, for the freedom and the, the opportunity we have to do what we're doing this morning. Um, I thank you, God, that, that we can come into this place and not only worship you freely, but, but break open the word of God and read it and um, be able to discuss it. So Father, we pray that you bless this church this morning. We don't just pray for this church, though, Father. We pray for every church in this city. We pray for our other campuses and the churches in those cities, God, and we pray, Lord, that, that as we study your word and apply your word to our lives, God, that we can be the salt and the light in a very dark world, Lord. We love you, we thank you, God, and we pray all these things in your son's name, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm gonna cut this up into three parts. First one is short, the second and third are a little bit longer, okay? Let me read a little bit and we'll break it down. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith equal to ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Okay, so a little bit about Peter. I said this during 1 Peter, but it's good to kind of recap this a little bit. Peter was a fisherman, he followed a guy named John the Baptist. If you're not familiar with who that is, you can go into the first couple of chapters in Matthew and learn a little bit about John the Baptist until Peter's brother Andrew told him about Jesus. And then Jesus passed by, called Peter. Peter went off, dropped everything, dropped his business and followed Jesus. His name was changed from Simon to Peter and he refers to himself here as Simon Peter, which is different than 1 Peter but his name was changed from Simon to Peter by Jesus because Jesus saw that Simon's character was like a rock. That's what Peter means. Now, it's interesting. If you go back, if you're a new believer in here, you're not a believer yet, and you buy a Bible and you read the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, it doesn't seem like Peter is much of a rock, right? What Jesus saw in him, though, was post the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ, that's when Peter kind of stepped into his true character. Before then, he was a little reckless, a little impulsive, a little selfish. I said this during 1 Peter, but my, my, probably my favorite story about Peter is when Jesus is about to be arrested and Peter grabs a sword and cuts a soldier's ear off and Jesus is like, come on, Peter, you know, that's not how we do it. Stuck it back on the guy's head and we get the famous phrase, those who live by the sword die by the sword. That's because of Peter's impulsivity that we have this phrase. He was also, though, a natural leader. The 12 followed him. He eventually became the first leader of Christianity, right? The first kind of official leader of the church. Eventually, he was crucified. And this is interesting. He was crucified upside down by, by maybe one of history's most insane leaders, Caesar Nero. And he was crucified shortly after he wrote this letter. And we'll actually read a little bit about that in chapter one. He talks about that his life's about to come to an end. And so that, that, that's interesting to know the history and then a little bit of the context of what was going on when he wrote this letter. 
The purpose of this letter, like I already said, is a little bit different than the first letter. So this letter was written a couple years after the second one. Peter died shortly after writing this letter. This letter was mostly written to Gentiles. That means non-Jews. So mostly Greek and Roman Christians, mostly in the area of Turkey, and they were being heavily persecuted. So not only did he want to encourage these Christians to stand firm in their faith, he was concerned about false teaching. This is where it becomes very relevant for us today, right? We have a gazillion talking heads around us telling us what is right and wrong, and even telling us that we can choose what is right and wrong. And so Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Peter was concerned about false teachers infiltrating the church. And this kind of brings us to our thesis, okay? This is where we're gonna kind of kind of hang our hats today. That, that not only was Peter concerned about Christians getting derailed from the word of God and the truth of God into following what pleases them and following what they want, not only was he concerned about that, basically the overall, the overall concern of Peter both then and what would be now is the temptation for us to live in our truth, our truth versus the truth. You ever heard people say, well, this is true to me. Well, I don't really care what's true to you. I care what's true. And we all are tempted sometimes to follow our own truth, right? It's called relativism versus following absolutism, right? That the truth of God. Now, this is all of us. All of us in this room will be tempted by this ease and this allure to follow what we want versus what the Savior wants for us. But this is important. True followers of Jesus Christ will grow in their knowledge of God. We do that by reading the Bible. And true followers of Christ will grow in their obedience to God, which means doing what the Bible tells us to do. That's what true Christians do. They follow Savior over self. So what we have to do is we have to take the posture of Peter. And Peter says, I'm a servant. Now that word can literally be translated, more accurately translated to slave. Now that doesn't mean that God is a tyrannical dictator that, that, that you know, oppresses us, that's not what that means. When Peter says I'm a slave, he says I am willingly submitting myself to my master. I am choosing to be a slave, to dedicate everything I have to my master because Peter understood God is good, God is faithful, He's a heavenly father, he's perfect. And so I willingly submit myself, right, to servitude to my master. Peter also says something quite fascinating. He says that you have received a faith that is equal to our faith. He's referring to himself and Paul and James and the other authors of the New Testament. Now this is quite intriguing and this is gonna launch us into another kind of ax I'm going to grind this morning, if you will. Peter says the same Holy Spirit, the same faith, the same access to God that, that he had, Peter, we have. And when we read the Bible sometimes, we're like, man, these people were super spiritual. And, and yes, they were, but they also used to be super terrible. Paul was a murderer and oppressive. Peter denied Jesus three times. Moses killed an Egyptian. David killed a dude and slept with his wife. 
They did awful, horrible things, things I hope you never do, right? Because you'll go to jail and don't, don't do those things. But what Peter is saying is the same power that transformed me can transform you. This is important because Christianity in the United States does everything it can to make the excuse to continue living in sin even though we claim to be saved. Uh-oh, here we go. So Peter talks about we have to have a knowledge of God. When Peter, ha when Peter says we have a knowledge of God, he doesn't mean an academic knowledge of God. He doesn't mean a theoretical knowledge of God. This doesn't mean we all have to go to seminary or get PhDs or master's degrees in divinity. That's not what that means. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's not what he's saying. He says we have to have a personal knowledge of God, which means we have to have a relationship with him. This is the same kind of relationship if you're married in here that if you've been married, I've been with my wife for 25 years. And so when you've been with someone for, for a long time like that, it's not like the, the, that you just read a book on your spouse and you're following the book, that's academic. It's this fact that you have spent so much time together for such a long period of time. And those of you who've been married for a lengthy amount of time, it's almost like you have mental telepathy, isn't it? You can, you can look at your spouse and be like, oh, they're not happy, right? Or you can look at them and be like, they're, oh, they're in a good mood. You can almost read each other because you have spent so much time together. And this is how we are to grow in God. That when we have a daily walk with God, we begin to learn God's heart. We begin to adopt God's nature. We begin to grow in peace. Why? Because we're hanging out with the Prince of Peace. And we start to grow in grace and mercy and we start to grow in obedience. We're supposed to spend that quality time with God, have that knowledge of God. And because we've been saved, listen, and if we grow in our relationship with God, there should be evidence in our life that we have a relationship with Jesus, okay? Part's a little bit longer, bear with me here. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, listen to this, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. I highlighted verse eight. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort, there's that word effort twice, to confirm your calling and election. Because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, Entry into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly provided for you. Therefore, I will always remind you about these things, even though you know them and you're established in the truth you now have. 
I think it is right as long as I'm in this bodily tent to wake you up with a reminder, since I know that I will soon lay aside my tent as our Lord Jesus Christ has indeed made that clear to me. And I will make every effort, this is the third time, so that you're able to recall these things at any time after my departure. Evidence. So verse three is very pivotal in my opinion. This is a very, very important verse, verse three. What verse three does is tells us that we are called to live a godly life. Not only are we called to live a godly life, we are able to live a godly life. So not only are Christians called to holy living and good works post-salvation, not only are we called to living holy and producing good works after we're saved, God has given us the ability to do that. Now, whenever I say that, right, people hate it when I quote the Bible too much in church. That bothers some people, right? When I, when I, and let me tell you, let me give you a quick English lesson. Whenever people get mad at things that I say, these things on the, on the corners of certain phrases, those are called quotation marks. That means that I didn't write that. So if you have a problem with that, like you need to take that up with Paul or Peter or I guess God, right? I didn't do this. So whenever I say things like we are to do good works as Christians, they go, Corey, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you're saved by grace through faith. And I'm like, hold on there, chief, keep reading the chapter because it says you are saved by grace through faith unto good works that we are to walk in. That post-salvation, you are called to produce good things. And we can do that, as Paul writes, because we are free of sin's claims. Not only did Paul write that in Romans 6, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 that we were saved unto good works as well, to give glory to our Father in heaven. And we do this by a relationship with God. The Bible also says, again, look at those quotations, that we are capable of escaping the corruption of the world. That we are to be humble, repentant, consistent with Jesus. And if we are, there are precious promises that God has for us, like salvation, that's a good one. Purification, which means we're not just saved, that we're made pure. That we have discernment, the ability to see what is right and wrong, and the ability to live in a way that honors God. So here's the thing. Jesus, this is all from the Gospel of Matthew. Not only does Jesus say you're the light of the world, you're the salt to a saltless society, not only to a flavorless society, not only does he say we are like sheep among wolves, God would be pretty terrible to send us out in the world like sheep among wolves if he does not equip us to succeed out in that world. That logically speaking, a good God would equip his saints to go out and live holy lives and do good things and shed the light on God to people that don't know God, right? And so let me tell you what I'm really tired of. I'm tired of Christians in the United States constantly making excuses to live the same way they did before they encountered Jesus. I'm tired of it because it's not biblical. It's not biblical. We are called to live differently after we are saved by grace. And Jesus talks about this. And again, I'm sorry to talk about Jesus so much in church, but in Matthew chapter seven, right? That's not, people don't do this anymore. They don't talk about the Bible and Jesus anymore in church. It's about how good you are and how good I'm gonna make you feel. But in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus says, 
a tree will be known by its fruit. This is the most logical statement ever. How do you identify an apple tree? You walk up to the tree, and if it has apples on it, it's pretty safe to say that's an apple tree. If you walk up and it has oranges on it, but the tree's like, I'm an apple tree, you're like, well, no, you're not. There's oranges on you. But what we do in Christianity is we go, I'm a Christian, and then we can say, well, what is the fruit of your Christianity? Well, who says I have to produce fruit? Jesus did. There should be evidence of your salvation. That's how we are known as believers. And though we often make excuses for this, the life of a Christian should look dramatically different than the life of a non-Christian. That doesn't mean that God loves us more, that we're better, but we have a knowledge that they don't have. And so regardless of what theological camp you guys fall into, Christians love to try to outsmart other Christians. Well, I'm this, and I'm this, and we're gonna squabble about this. And the whole time, a bunch of non-believers are going to hell because we're so busy squabbling that we don't spread the gospel. But anyway, that's another lesson for another time. I don't care if you believe you can lose your salvation, that once saved, always saved, that, that you can forfeit your salvation. I don't care where you land on that. The point is this. If, if our life is not reflecting the gospel of Jesus and the teachings of the New Testament, something is dramatically wrong. Whether you never had it or whether you lost it, I don't care. I know that there's a disconnect and we need to fix that. We need to work on that. Our lives should reflect the teachings of the New Testament. So what exactly should it reflect? Well, Peter goes to, to kind of tell us what it should reflect. We should make every effort. Wait a second, Corey, you're saying we have to work at our faith? The Bible says it many times, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You can go on and on and on. That we are to make every effort to supplement our faith with goodness. That means morality, doing what is morally right. And we know that from the Bible. Knowledge, which is the truth, also the Bible. Self-control, it's pretty self-explanatory. Endurance, to be able to stand up for our faith. Godliness, that means obedience to the word, a reverence for God. Affection, that means being nice to each other. And then love. This isn't like I love tacos. This is like a deep, passionate love for the souls of the people around you. So we are called to work at our faith. Works, I'm not saying work save you. No, no, no. We are to work at our faith post-salvation. This is why James said, you can tell me you have faith. I will show you I have faith by my works. That's James chapter two. This is Bible, right? That we are to demonstrate the fact that we have been saved by grace. And if we demonstrate that we have been saved by grace, we are not useless. Did he just call people useless? No, Peter did. Peter said that some people are useless. And listen, if we're being honest, there are people that squander their lives. There are people who have become useless. They've had every opportunity to succeed in life, to do great things for the kingdom, to be good spouses and parents or whatever the case may be. But because they have become so selfish, the Bible would say they have become useless. They have become unfruitful. And according to Peter, if we don't make an effort, 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 effort to supplement our faith, we become blind. Not only that, look what he says. We forget the fact that Jesus has cleansed us from our past mistakes. How many Christians, Christians, do you guys know that God has maybe miraculously healed them? He has saved their marriage. He has saved their finances, whatever. We can go on and on and on. 
And how many Christians do you know that have been delivered of things, of addiction, and then life gets back to normal and they go right back to that stuff? The Bible says it's like a dog that returns to its vomit. It's like someone that expels something, right? Because it's not supposed to be in your body and then they go back and consume it again. So I, I, again, this is, this, is a, this is a fact and it's not an easy fact to ingest, but we would be fools to think that God doesn't examine the fruit of our lives and then judge us based on that fruit, based either reward or punish us on that fruit. And again, people say, well, how can you say that? John chapter 15, it's all in red in your Bible, which means Jesus is saying it. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And if I look at the branches and they produce no fruit, what does Jesus say? I cut them off and I throw them in a fire. I don't know what you think that means, but it means our eternity. It means that there is a rewards or judgment based on if we act out on the truth that we know, that we are held accountable to produce good things for God. And so again, regardless of what theological camp you fall in, some people say, well, I'm one of the elect, right? I have been chosen by God and I believe God chooses us. I also believe we have to choose God back. And that's why Peter says, confirm your calling. Okay, you say you're elected, live like you're elected. Live like you've been chosen by God. And in a relationship with God, it doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it means that we are pursuing holiness. We are pursuing the things of God. And if we are, 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 are confirming our election, if we're putting effort into our faith, we will never stumble in our faith. That doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it means that ultimately we will never turn our back on the faith. We will constantly be moving closer and closer towards God. Recently, we had someone come up to the front and talk to, to, to Pastor Mike and say, why does Corey say we have to repent for our sins before we take communion? Well, one, Jesus said that, right? Paul said that, that we have to take that or it's condemnation unto ourselves if we do not repent before we take communion. The other thing is this, whether, whether one sin can separate us from God or not is not the point. If we claim to love Jesus as Christians more than anything, and if we do something that is rebellious against our, our spiritual husband, God, whether it's a matter of us losing our salvation or being separated from him, that shouldn't even be the point. If I love him more than anything and I do something that hurts him, because I love him, I should want to say I'm sorry. And I'm flabbergasted with Christians who are like, do we have to repent every time we sin? There's something wrong with your heart if you ask that question. I've been married to my wife for a long time and will she divorce me if I make a mistake? No, but even though I, I, I make that mistake, because I love her, I wanna say, I'm really sorry I did that to you because I care for her, right? I'll, I'll quit, I'm belaboring that point too much. So Peter says, I feel like I have to wake you up and remind you of these things. So Peter was about to die, he was about to be martyred. That's why he said, when I lay aside my tent, that's a very fancy, eloquent way of saying they're about to kill me, right? And he says, before they kill me, he wanted to remind the church about the power that they have access to and the truth that they have access to, not just through God, but through the word of God. Now listen, sometimes in our lives, we need to be shaken up a little bit. Isn't it interesting how quickly though we get right back into the routine? COVID shook the church up for about a year or two. And now that everything's passed, like people have become kind of nominal again. 
It's just not a big deal anymore, right? If you're old enough to remember uh, uh, 9-11, 2001, like we were all patriotic and we all loved each other for about three months and then everything went right back to normal, right? And sometimes we need to be shaken. Sometimes we need, to, we, we, need to, we need to remember to live intentionally. Sometimes we need to remember that salvation is not just about us. We often talk about church like, man, I'm gonna go get my blessings and I'm gonna go get what's for me. And you know this isn't just about you. You're not saved just to, just to be blessed and saved. You are saved to go out and be the light to a community that doesn't know Christ. And so we need to be reminded that I'm not just saved so I can get out of hell free, right? I'm saved so I can go out and do good works that bring glory to my Father in heaven. I'm a vessel, I'm an instrument, I'm a catalyst. And that's what all of you are called to be as well. We are not given the light of God just to hold it. I think Jesus told a parable about this, right? We're called to let it shine so the whole city sees it. And we are given a lamp, right? The world is confusing, but we are given a lamp in a dark place. For we do not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic words strongly confirmed and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, know this, no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible, Peter is saying, is not cleverly contrived myths. The Bible is the account of the power and of the plan of God through Jesus Christ. So here's what is important, and this is where Christianity is losing in the United States. We as Christians cannot separate God and the Word of God. They are inseparable. Now what we've done in modern day Christianity, especially in this part of the world, is we, we give this pep talk, we give a motivational speech, we might take a scripture and bastardize it and twist it and make us fit what we're already saying, but that's really all that we do, right? We slide that one thing in there. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. The Bible is imperative. Listen, we do not worship the Bible. I do not worship this leather and paper that is right here, but we worship the God that this book describes. Without the word of God, we have no idea of the nature of God, the character of God, the truth of God. And a big issue that we have amongst professing Christians is they say, well, I don't think Jesus would do that. And I'm like, well, where do you, where do you get that assumption from? From the Bible? Because if you don't get it from the Bible, I really don't care what you think about Jesus. Because this is the only knowledge that we have of God. And even if we feel something and think it's of God, if we go to this and it doesn't agree with that feeling, this is right and you are wrong. That wasn't from God. This is our compass. This is our anchor, right? This is what we stay tethered 
Two, you cannot separate God and the word of God. And so G, uh, Peter talks about two things. He says there's two things that, that, that have allowed him to hold on to his faith. One is he had an experience with Jesus. And all of us need to have that experience with Jesus. Peter's experience with Jesus was quite literal. He and James and John were on a hillside. Jesus was transfigured, that's in Luke chapter nine. And what that means is that these three guys basically got to see Jesus not quite in his fullness, but almost like they got to peek into the curtain of heaven a little bit and see God in his fullness, radiant, right and bright. And they heard the voice of God. And a lot of theologians believe the reason why, why Jesus let these three men see this is this is what would sustain them to keep walking in the faith. So if you think about Peter, and you think about Peter in a Roman jail cell, knowing that he's not only about to be killed, he's about to be nailed to a piece of wood upside down until he suffocates to death. Imagine being in that jail cell, and probably the only thing that kept Peter going was he knew beyond the shadow of a doubt, right, that Jesus was everything he said he was. He had an experience with Jesus. The other thing that kept, that kept Peter holding on, and now we finally get to this idea a little bit about false teachers, is Peter said, I saw this thing happen with Jesus, and not only that, we have the prophetic word. What Peter was referring to is the Old Testament of this book that unfortunately so many Christians don't put much stock into. The Old Testament of this book were, were mostly prophecies, and all throughout the Old Testament, it told about a coming savior, and so Peter says, not only did I see Jesus, all the words that were written about him hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came, they came true. The words of Joel and Isaiah and all the different prophets of the Old Testament, they came true. And so we have this prophetic word. And because, listen, this is important, because of those of you in this room who claim to be Christians, you should have had two things happen. You should have had an experience with Jesus, right? A life-changing conversion through Jesus. And you should lean on the word of God, the truth. And if we have those two things, there shouldn't be any false teaching that should be able to pull us away. And so oftentimes people go, well, how can you believe that the Bible is valid? How can you trust the Bible? Well, one, the author's testimonies. You have a bunch of cowardly men that got scattered and were, were shaken and kind of discombobulated. And then after the resurrection of Jesus, these guys became powerhouses. What happened? Something miraculous must have happened. We have the historical accuracy of the Bible. We have the practicality of the Bible. Simply saying, if you take the teachings of this book and apply them to your marriage, your finances, your work, your relationships, they all turn out better. There is the wisdom of the word of God and there are the fulfilled prophecies. All of these things give the Bible validity. It gives them evidence to its truth, evidence to its power. And that's why Peter says, and this is so important, he says, you would do well to pay attention to the word of God. Mind boggling, right? As a Christian, it would be really, really smart for us to pay attention to the word of God. And it is fascinating. The analogy that Peter uses is it's a lamp. It's, it's like a flashlight in a pitch black room. It's like if, if, if this room was life, right? And you come in through this door over here and it's pitch black 
and you're trying to go through those doors over there. You're gonna stumble a lot. You're gonna hit a pole. You're gonna trip over a chair. You're gonna bump into stuff. But if you came in through this door and I gave you a big flashlight, doesn't, listen, doesn't matter how dark the room is. If you have the light, you can make it from one point to the other point. You guys with me this morning? This is simple stuff, right? And so Peter's saying without the light, it's impossible to make it from there to there. It's impossible to make it from birth to your proper eternity. And the further we move away from the anchor of God's word, it's no wonder that the world you live in is absolute insanity. It is no wonder that the church in the United States is plummeting. There is not one denomination in the United States that is growing, not one. The fastest demographic of religious people that are growing in the United States right now are nuns, not N-U-N-S, N-O-N-E-S, which means none of the above. It means atheist. That is the fastest growing demographic in the United States and the most rapidly declining Christianity. We are missing it. And why are we missing it? We don't teach this. We've, we've put down our lamp. We have put down our lamp. Listen, side note, and I'm not saying this boastfully, we have churches literally from all over the country and all over the world call this church, get a hold of this church, send us emails, and they say, how in the world did this church grow so quickly? How did it grow so quickly? And you can almost, you can almost see the disappointment on pastors' faces when I say we teach expositorily, which means word by word, verse through verse, through the Bible. And you can almost see the disappointment in their face because that's not the route they wanna take. That's hard, right? You're gonna say offensive things. It's gonna take some time and they don't wanna deal with it. They want shenanigans. They want some silver bullet. They wanna hear that we had a giraffe on a unicycle juggling you know, golf balls through the sanctuary on Easter. You know, that's the trick. That's how you grow a church. And you might grow a church like that, but listen, however you get people in the door is how you're gonna to have to keep them. And if shenanigans get them in the door, you have to keep up with the shenanigans or they're gonna go somewhere else. But listen, hold on, this is a praise to you guys. If you get people in through teaching the word of God, it's the word of God that keeps them and that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. Because the word of God is the mind and character of God on paper. I love what Peter says. He says that, he says, this Bible, this book didn't come from men. It's too good to have come from men, right? Not just mankind, men specifically, right? It's too good for that. We're not that smart. The Bible is too powerful to have come from us. And so the scripture didn't come from man. The people who, who penned the word of God were just couriers by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit just worked through them and their hands did this, right? But it was all God working through them. It's too good. The words have stood the test of time. It's practical, it works. The wisdom could not have just come by mere man. And so the word of God is the mind and character of God. It's important and it will absolutely change the life of anyone who reads it and applies it. It will absolutely change your life in every aspect of your life. Our problem though is this. In our culture, we believe in relativism. We believe in relative truth. Simply put, what that means is what's true for you may not be true for me. And now listen, that is extremely contradictory. It does not work. 
In the most basic levels, it does not work. And, and, and now listen, I'm not trying to grind an ax and I'm not trying to be political. I'm not trying to do any of that. But right now there's a big argument, right? You, you have the argument of this idea that, that gender is fluid, right? That there is no such thing as gender. Gender is dead. That's actually a phrase that a lot of people use. There's no such thing as gender. And then you have feminism. Now listen, hold, hold on real quick. I, I believe in feminism and I mean that in the traditional sense of the word feminism. I was raised by a single mother. I have two daughters. I even have a female dog. I'm all about women. I believe in the empowerment of women. I believe in, in true feminism. That's a good thing. But one cannot simultaneously believe the truth of feminism and the truth of there is no gender. Because if there is no gender, there is no feminism. What I'm saying is this, relative truth always comes to hypocrisy. It always eats its own tail because there cannot be multiple truths. And the false teaching that we can create our own personal truth is literally ripping our society apart. It is ripping us apart right now. But many people, even professing Christians, have fallen prey to this idea of the pursuit of self versus the pursuit of savior. Well, that's my truth. There's only one truth. And it's not up to me. Well, I don't feel like that. Well, if you claim to be a Christian, I, I'm not trying to be mean. Your feelings are kind of irrelevant because the Bible says in Jeremiah that your feelings can be deceptive. Let me give you a, a word of advice. Don't follow your feelings. If you follow your feelings, you're gonna cheat on your wife. You're gonna, you're gonna neglect your children. You're gonna do bad things and you're gonna hurt a lot of people. So simply put, the pursuit of self and relative truth is not working. And if you wanna Google this when you get home, just Google this. Are people happier now than they were in the past? You will not find one study, at least by anyone credible, right? You will not find one study by any major university, I'm talking about secular universities, that say that people are happier in 2022 than they were in let's say 1957. They will tell you that people were happy 70 years ago. And we are more depressed than we've ever been. We are more anxious than we ever, we've ever been. We're more addicted, we're more aggressive, we're more violent, we're more unhappy, we're more suicidal than we have ever been since we've kept records of such things. So logically speaking, the road that we're on is not working for us. It's not working, so what do we do? Well, the first thing is we need a lamp, right? We need a light. And if we're gonna have the light, listen, this is important. We first have to desire absolute truth. If you're in this room and you're a stone cold atheist or you're an agnostic, and I don't mean that disparagingly like, or, 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 or condescendingly, I used to be an agnostic, my wife was an atheist. And so if you've come into the room as one of those things, right? We have to first have a desire to find the truth. You have to want to go on the journey. And if you want to go on the journey, we must be humble enough and we, be, we must humble ourselves to accept that whatever truth we find, that we will accept it regardless if it lines up with my preferences or feelings. So if I am looking for the truth, and I'm not trying to be mean, please don't think I'm trying to be mean. I'm just gonna talk like real people in here. If I come into this place and I'm sleeping with my boyfriend, right? And I want the truth and I start digging into this word and it says that sex outside of marriage is a sin against God. I come to a crossroad there. Do I want the truth that what I'm doing is wrong? Or do I wanna live in my own truth, right? Well, we're married in God's eyes, wrong. Do you want to live in your own truth? 
You're gonna come to that fork in the road. So if we're looking for the truth, we have to look at it like scientists, right? That we don't come up with what we wanna find and then try to weasel our way there. We start at the beginning, we do experiments, and then we reach a conclusion, the truth. And if you genuinely look for the truth, I think you will genuinely find the truth. Why? Because Jesus said those who seek the truth, find it. So if you come into this room genuinely looking for the answers, I think you will genuinely find them. Now, what you do with those is up to you because we must first want to hold the light, but if we're going to hold the light, we have to submit to the light. When we discover the truth, we must submit to the truth. The truth is Jesus Christ. In this submission, we're not to only pray. I recommend you pray. Christians are supposed to pray but we're also to read the word of God to learn how we are to live, to learn how we are, are to live in a way that honors our creator. And when we live the way the Bible tells us to live, man, and I could go through this room and there could be testimonies for days about people who humbled themselves. They picked up a Bible, they prayed, they read the word of God, they applied these things to their lives. And I can tell you stories of marriages that were fixed, finances that were fixed, addictions that were broken, people who were physically healed, mentally healed, spiritually healed, all these things, if we will just relent and if we will just give it over to God and submit and work out this process in our life, God gives us peace, he gives us joy, he gives us fulfillment, he gives us purpose. So we would, it would make sense for us to pay attention to this book because here's what's beautiful. Not only does Jesus offer us salvation for free, but Jesus gives us the remarkable clarity of this. So whenever we're like, what would Jesus do? It says it right here, right? How should I handle this situation? How should I do this or that? It's, it's all right here. He's given us remarkable clarity on how we are not only to live, but how to deal with virtually every situation in life. And it is what sustains us. It's what helps us to get from the dark over here to the dark side over there, right, is this light until the day dawns, which means until Jesus comes back. Until Jesus comes back, we need the wisdom of this word. And when he comes back, he will be the light that, that encompasses everything. And we won't need this light anymore, right? We don't, we don't need the word of God anymore because we'll be with him physically. But until that day comes, you need this. You need this. So it is only by the truth in this book that you can find freedom. It is only by the principles and teachings and wisdom of the word of God that we can be set free. It's not by other Christian authors, and I have no problem with other Christian authors, but if you're busy reading, and I'm not trying to be mean, like Francis Chan books all day long, you need to read this first. Because men are fallible, women are fallible. And if we don't, or if we're not grounded in the word of God, sometimes these men and women that, that write great books, they end up becoming heretics and people get confused, right? So we have to be careful. And here's the thing, the correlation of the chaos in America and the correlation of the chaos in the American church and the disregard for us reading and living by scripture is no coincidence. Without a light, listen, people bump into things. Without a light in a pitch black room, people get hurt. 
people fall down, people stumble. That's why we must have the light. Listen, very, very simple, straightforward stuff. I told you, the, 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 the end of this is gonna be very anticlimactic. It's basically me saying to you, read your Bible. But um, here's the thing. So if you're in here this morning and you're like, okay, I'm sold. You drive down to Barnes and Noble today. I don't know if anyone actually goes in bookstores anymore, but let's say you do. And you go to Barnes and Noble and you buy this book, right? You get it, you flip it open to the back. You're like, holy crap, there's 2,000 pages in there. There's a lot in there. It's not easy. There's a lot of names, a lot of dates. It's a dense book, right? Most important book ever written. It's a big deal. I'm gonna tell you the same way, right? As the old saying goes, how do you eat an elephant? one bite at a time, right? Little by little. Start in the book of Matthew. When you think Bible, think Star Wars. Start in episode four, do four, five, and six. Go, go back and do one, two, three, right? That's the Old Testament. And then disregard all the, 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 the stuff that came after that, right? The, uh, um, <laughs> That'll be the only thing you guys remember today. What do you talk about today? I don't know, something about Star Wars. Seriously though, get this book, start in the book of Matthew, read a couple of chapters a day. If you can't set aside time every day, you can read the whole book of Matthew in about 40 minutes. Once a week, read a book of the Bible, right? And then once you get done with the New Testament, go back and start at the book of Genesis and then you're gonna see how we got to where we were in the New Testament. It's fascinating, it's brilliant, it's beautiful. And I'm gonna tell you this, if you, if you read the word and if you apply the word, it'll absolutely transform your life. Every corner of your life, it will change it. I give you my word, okay? Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and, and maybe you're a new believer or maybe you are not a believer at all, so glad you're here, if that's the case. If you are not a believer at all, if you have any questions for us, any questions, we're not afraid of questions, up here on my right, your left, is Pastor Amanda. She is in charge of our student ministries, our Encounter High School ministries. If you have any questions for her, she would love to talk with you. You're not gonna offend her, any of that. Just, just please come up and ask her any questions. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything in your life, doesn't matter what it is, you can come up here and get prayer. The last thing is there is communion all the way around this room where we see a lamp on a table. And then if you're sitting in the middle, there are some baskets with some disposable communion if you don't wanna fight the lines. All the way around this room, there is bread and wine that symbolizes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Everyone who has asked Jesus to forgive them of their sins, you are welcome to take the body and blood of Jesus Christ and just remember what he has done for us, right? Father, Lord, we love you. I pray, God, that as our world becomes more and more confusing, God, as there are so many voices telling us so many things, God, telling us to pursue our truth and, and their truth and all kinds of other things, Lord, I pray, God, that, that through prayer and through your word that we can discern the truth, God, that we can apply the truth to our lives that we will, we will be blessed by that, God, that we will grow in our relationship with you, that we can be the light in a dark place, God. Father, keep your hand on everyone in this room. Keep them safe until we meet again. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. And we pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Thank you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much.